I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hines Education Foundation's Get to College program. Based in South Haven, Jackson, and Ocean Springs, Get to College advisors help students and families plan and pay for college. Learn more at woodwardhines.org. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, January 25th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, two Mississippi agencies are warning legislators an extended federal shutdown could mean furloughing state employees. Under the circumstance where they don't pay it, the government shutdown continues, and I don't get that money. And the legislature doesn't provide something to make up that money In the meantime, I'm short $15 million. Then, in an MPB's At Issue preview, find out how pending legislation addresses the tragic toll human trafficking can have on a family. And during this Drug and Alcohol Facts Week, how parents, schools, and communities are urged to inform teenagers on the dangers of drugs and alcohol. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Two Mississippi agencies tell legislators an extended federal shutdown could mean furloughing state employees. The executive director of the Mississippi Department of Human Services says they receive at least $30 million per month from the federal government to pay salaries. If the federal shutdown continues, a plan will be implemented to begin furloughs March 1st. Judge Jess Dickinson heads Child Protection Services. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier they're waiting on funds from the government that can be used to pay salaries or else they'll have to make cuts. Uh, The Department of Human Services provides $30 million a year of my financing. I depend on DHS to get $30 million a year. We get that $15 million in the first half and $15 million in the second half. We've already gotten the first half. I've got $15 million more in, in TANF funds coming from DHS for the second half of this fiscal year. The government is shut down, and so that means they're not going to pay that money until it comes. Well, I, I shouldn't say that. I don't know what they're going to do. Right now they're not paying it. So under the circumstance where they don't pay it, the government shutdown continues to June or July, and I don't get that money. And the legislature doesn't provide something to make up that money in the meantime. I'm short $15 million. That's a lot of mo- That is a lot of money to me. Uh, and so I've got to figure where am I going to, what am I going to cut in order to uh, make up that $15 million. And as I said in there, I only have two things to cut, really. And that's employees and, and foster homes for children. 
And so you say you have enough to make it through the 1st of May? I don't know. I, 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 it depends on how you move the money. I, mean, I, I have the, enough to make it through the rest of the year in some respects. But there are certain things we do, I'm saying. And I'm saying that I'm not, you know, I'm not going to shut the agency down and say we no longer have CPS. But I'm saying in order to make up that $15 million, uh, I've got to ask myself, what am I going to cut? And I've got to cut back employees, and I've got to cut back foster care, group homes, congregate care homes, board payments that I pay. Uh, we pay some foster parents $800 a month, uh, about $10,000 a year. We pay some 60 to take care of children with, with serious medical problems. Judge Jess Dickinson with MPB's Desiree Frazier. The announcements were made before the House Appropriations Committee Thursday. Representative John Reed, a Republican from Gaucher, chairs the Appropriations Committee. He tells our Desiree Frazier it's a possibility, not yet a reality. I say that uh, right now this is a possibility, but it's not reality yet. So therefore, uh, we're trying to get, get a budget for this year, trying to work within our purview and like I said, these two gentlemen were, they just had, were forthright enough to say, look, it could be a problem. So what would you say to workers? Um, because they're going to hear this and they're going to be well, concerned. This is like everything. It, 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 it's a possibility, but it's, it's, it's not a reality at this time. It could come in, say, 30 days or so. Look around any agency that, that deals with, uh, you know, federal subsidies is, could, could come in the same thing, probably Department of Agriculture, uh, just Medicaid. I mean, just look around. Any, you know, all this federal dollars, if it starts. Uh, and it does show how much the state does rely on federal dollars. Well, this, well, you heard, yes, the state does re- rely on federal dollars, but I hope it never becomes reality. Reed says taking money from the rainy day fund may be an option, but they'll have to monitor the full picture going forward. Naturally, we, we want to protect all of our employees, but... You know, it's going to come down to how much is our revenue. You know, right now we, we, we have revenue and it's looking decent, but let's see what January and February's revenue is, and then we'll know how much money we have, and then we'll go forward on it. Representative John Reed. DHS employs 4,500 workers. House Democrat John Hines of Greenville says several state agencies have at least 100 workers whose salaries are paid with federal funds. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier as many as 7,000 state employees could be affected should the government shutdown continue. Well, I'm deeply concerned. Uh, In this state, we could be around 7,000 employees who depend on federal funds. Uh, for their livelihood that could be impacted. And so um, I'm looking to find some ways to uh, secure them not you know, being in a situation where they'll lose their homes, their cars, or be able to just to feed their families. Uh, it's unfortunate that the federal government uh, has decided uh, to uh, stop functioning in the manner it should, but it just shows you the plight of Mississippi. Uh, a state like Mississippi that's depended upon a large amount of federal funds for the livelihood of their citizens uh, show you where we are as a state. In terms of laying off workers, um, furloughing workers, uh, what do you say to folks? Well, first of all, you apologize for the inconvenience in which it's causing their family, but and then you have to tell them this is, this is federal government. It's not uh, our fault. But you try to find a solution. You try to make phone calls and, and talk to people and build some type of consensus uh, to just do the right thing. 
it's unfortunate that uh, egos are playing such a major role in, in this process. And, um, you know, our president said he had no problem shutting down the government. He wasn't going to blame anybody else. But now we have to make a decision on how we protect the citizens. And what concerns me is that something as simple as SNAP benefits uh, that allow people to have uh, nutritious meals will impact mom-and-pop stores, farmers, uh, small business owners like truck drivers, even the, the, the people who contract out uh, spraying the fields and stuff like that. This thing has large impact. So uh, according to what was told us, this could be a three to $500 million impact a month, I mean a year on this state. So 30 to $60 million a month. That's a huge impact on, on this state and the economy. So we really have to make sure uh, that we engage people to understand what is taking place so you won't have a senior uh, trying to figure out where they're going to get a meal. Think about the number of people in this state that on you know, Meals for Wheels. That's the only way they eat is, is a program that is set up by the federal government. And so, I'm, you know, I'm deeply concerned about the people who, who depend on us to do our jobs. Does the state have the money in the rainy day fund that could shore it up until the government opens, if that were to happen? Uh, to answer your question, I think we have some money in the rainy day fund that we could possibly use. You know, it's raining. And so we need to make sure that we're able to pull as much as we can, if we can pull some out. But right now we're just trying to figure out which, what's the best solution. And uh, we've been having some conversations, and we're going to work over the weekend to probably have something in place for Monday. Could the state get a loan? Well, you know, one of the conversations has been uh, using the rainy day fund to go borrow money to uh, stabilize the situation, and then once the federal funds come back in, pay the loan off. So I think all those avenues are out there. But uh, I really would hope that our governor, with his relationship with the president, would sit down and say, hey, this is a problem in our state. Uh, can you stop this and, and get back to work because we're going to hurt innocent people? You know, now's the time to call on that relationship. Anything that I didn't ask you that's important? I want people to know that we're not sitting idly by and not thinking about solutions to help solve this problem from a state perspective. Um, you know, we didn't cause this problem, but we have to find a solution for it. And so people, we don't want people to panic. We don't want people to worry about losing their jobs. But we're just trying to do the best thing we can with the hand we've been dealt. Representative John Hines with our Desiree Frazier. The Department of Human Services has not responded to emails and calls for more details. Coming up, find out how pending legislation addresses the tragic toll human trafficking can have on a family. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hey, y'all, it's Felder Rushing. I'm the Gestalt Gardener, and I am so pleased to join y'all every week talking about gardening. You know, you don't have to be anybody or join anything to be part of this party. All we're going to do is talk about gardening and garden-related stuff and maybe a little psychology working in at the same time. Let's have a lot of fun on the Gestalt Gardener. Fridays at 9 and Saturdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Advocates for human trafficking survivors are encouraged by a bill making its way through the state legislature. House Bill 571 would clarify that minors are not to be prosecuted for being trafficked in activities such as prostitution. Salika Corley-Funchez works in victims' assistance at the Hines County Sheriff's Office and is the mother of a human trafficking survivor. She tells MPB's Ashley Norwood what this type of legislation means to her. We need 
absolutely more programs to get these women, these men into once they come out. Um, because for some, that's a lifestyle and that's a life that they've known. They're accustomed to that. You know, one thing the Speaker of the House, uh, Philip Gunn, said uh, in an interview, a lot of people may not even realize just how close to home it is. Kind of talk about that, given the work that you do. Um, how prevalent is this issue in our state? It's a very big issue for our state. Um, it's something that we need to actually get the word out more, do more training, more community-based training, because it's happening in every city, every neighborhood. Um, I've We've had people to come in from different states, you know, who are not from here. They're either just passing through. Um, I, I've had some to just flag over for help, and I've been contacted by other jurisdictions on how to handle that. So we definitely need to get the awareness as well as the training out there. And we need to change the mindsets because sometimes people will see it, but if it doesn't concern me, then it's not my problem. When in fact, it is your problem if we have children that are being placed in the classroom with your children and they were trained to go out and recruit. So it's something just as simple as that. And that's, that's another question. It's like the business of human trafficking. Is it that discreet and hidden or is it a situation where we just don't want to see it? Or is it both? I think in, in more cases than not, it's things that we don't want to see. We, we don't want to know that that's going on. We want to believe that that is a choice that minors cannot make. You know, adults were trained on trafficking as minors, and this is what they grew up believing. So, I mean, I've had some cases, they were as young as 15 when they got started. And they're well into adulthood now. And um, there was one young lady I asked, well, have you ever had a job? And she said, this is all I've done since the age of 15. So until we get to change those mindsets and not think this is an option, this is what she chooses, because a minor cannot choose to do that type of work. For those who haven't heard your story, what happened? Um, back in 2012, um, I had no idea what trafficking was at the time. Um, my daughter ended up missing for some new people that were in the area, offered her a just drink a Sprite, can of Sprite. And she said when she woke up, she was in a car full of people that she had never met in her life. And she's not seen those people since. Um, so she went through state to state. We were in touch with law enforcement in different states. And wherever we could get a tip, we would get a case card, get a case number. Until we, the last tip that we received was in Florida, the last place where her cell phone pinged. And so... You know, we were told she was a runaway, but she didn't have her cell phone charger. So after she could not use her phone anymore, we, we didn't have anything to go on. And so we waited um, until the last night that she was taken out to work. And the car that she was in with the young lady, when she went upstairs to make the arrangements, the cell phone um, charger was compatible to her phone. And she was able to plug her phone in and hide it under her thigh. And my mom said, I have faith the size of a mustard seed that when I log into this website, I'm going to find my baby. And that's all that she needed was that mustard seed of faith. And so we called law enforcement. He walked in and walked to the car and said, you know, she told me, help me get away from these people. And he said, ma'am, if, if she had not stepped forward and told me who she was, I would not have recognized her by the pictures that you sent me. Because of the trauma and everything that she had gone through, she didn't even look like the same girl. She did not. They altered her appearance. Um, she had a blonde wig um, that she was wearing, which is nowhere close to her hair color um, when she left here. Um, she actually had what started to be um, dreads or sister locks, something like that. That's what she had. And she had had the wig on for so long that we basically had to shave her hair off because it was matted. What about her body and her mind? How was she affected in that way? Um, oh my goodness. 
there was one incident that I remember a few days after she was returned home where there was a car who lost their way and they went up and down the street maybe two or three times. And little incidents like that, she would call me. You know, Mom, there's a car that went down the street two or three times. You know, what's going on? And I was trying to work at the time as well. So, you know, there were things that I would have to come home and, you know, talk her down as much as I could over the phone. If not, then I would have to come home Mm -hmm. and and check in on her. Mm -hmm. So we had that type thing. We had the just walking, the pacing all night. And she became a chain smoker, which she smoked before, but she became a chain smoker. And so she was up and down all day, all night. The first probably two or three days that she was home, she slept almost the entire time. And so you could see the marks that were visible when I took her to get her exam. You could still see the fingerprints in her arms where she was grabbed, where she tried to run several times. And bruising here where she was snatched up quite a few times as she would try to run. So there were not just psychological scars, there were physical scars as well. Some of the highlights of this bill providing blanket immunity Tell me why you think that would be important for minors who survive human trafficking. Yes, that would be very vital because they are, if they're not profitable, they don't eat. So they may be stealing to support um, maybe hygiene. They may be stealing for eating, you know, eating purposes for survival. So I think in that sense, you know, I think that there should be immunity for those crimes that, are, that occurred while they were um, being trafficked. When she survived human trafficking and she came home, was she the same girl that you knew before she was taken? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, What we, what was returned to us was a totally different person. We had to deal with the mood swings, the suicides, the why did this happen to me, um, the suicide attempts, I should say, disassociation, like distancing yourself away from the actual incident. We had to deal with a new person. And so I had to also go to training to learn how to deal with this new person. How is your daughter now? Um, She's actually doing pretty, pretty okay. You know, we still have those up and down moments. Um, Therapy is still a very touchy subject. So you got to go, you got to dig down deep sometimes and go where you don't want to go, you know, in order for that healing to take place. Hear more of the story from Salika Corley-Funchez and the issue of human trafficking tonight on MPB's At Issue at 7.30 on MPB TV. You're listening to Mississippi Edition, the only daily radio news magazine that covers the whole state. Coming up, how parents, schools, and communities are urged to inform teenagers on the dangers of drugs and alcohol. This is MPB Think Radio. Get your MPB car tag anytime. It doesn't even have to be up for renewal. Simply go to your county office to sign up. When you get an MPB car tag, a portion of the fee helps MPB continue to educate, inform, and entertain Mississippians. For details, visit mpbonline.org slash car tag. We'll see you on the road. Support for MPB comes from the Woodward Hines Education Foundation, committed to helping more Mississippians obtain post-secondary credentials, college certificates, and degrees that lead to employment. More information about Woodward Hines Education Foundation at woodwardhines.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 
While the use of opioids by teenagers has decreased over the past year, that's not the case with e-cigarettes or vaping, which has seen the largest ever recorded increase of any adolescent substance use in 43 years. And alcohol and marijuana continue to be popular with kids. Dr. Jack Stein is Director of Science, Policy, and Communications at the National Institute on Drug Abuse. He says the effects of drugs and alcohol can be more damaging to teenagers than adults. He tells us why. Uh, what is the drug of choice among teenagers now? Well, it's the same one that's been the drug of choice for um, uh, for many years, and that's alcohol. It's uh, unfortunately easily accessible and uh, probably the most uh, used and abused uh, substance that we have. Close behind it, though, of course, is marijuana. And uh, of greatest concern, though, these days is we've seen an increase in the use of vaping, um, which is a way to get nicotine as well as other substances into somebody's body. Now, why is vaping different than tobacco, or is it different than tobacco? Do you include cigarettes and tobacco in, uh, in your categories? Well, the good news is that cigarette smoking, traditional cigarette smoking, has actually decreased amongst young people. And that, I think, really reflects the aggressive prevention campaigns and other types of interventions that have occurred over the years. Um, vaping is a something uh, that's newer. Uh, electronic cigarettes or e-cigarettes, as people refer to them, uh, has really taken the field by storm. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a new, new product. It's technology-driven. It's it's uh, easy to conceal, and it, uh, just like cigarettes, contains nicotine, which is the drug that really is what causes uh, the problem of addiction. Now, there are other, many other chemicals in tobacco, uh, which may not be in the, the vaping tools, but uh, nicotine is the product that re- results in the actual addiction process. At what age are kids beginning experimentation or regular use, either of alcohol, marijuana, vaping, as you said? Yeah, yeah. Well, we do a study every year which looks at 8th, 10th, and 12th graders. So we're talking about kids that age range where really use uh, has really begun to, to take hold. Um, you know, some kids start even younger than that, but uh, we're really looking at kids in that uh, junior high to uh, middle school range where uh, we begin to see the, the use occur. The good news, though, is that uh, we've been tracking kids' uh, use of drugs for many, many years now. Right now, we're really seeing it at one of the uh, lowest levels in over two decades. So kids are doing something right these days. Uh, the big problem, though, we are seeing is that uh, skyrocketing increase in the use of vaping products, which includes getting access to nicotine as well as other substances like um, uh, marijuana. How is your office advocating on behalf of kids to keep them from starting or using regularly before adulthood? Well, we do our very best to take all the research that we do all over the world, particularly here in the U.S., and package it into ways for the American public to understand in an easy-to-understand way. Uh, That's one of the reasons why we have this week, which we call National Drug and Alcohol Facts Week, which is all about getting the information out to families, to kids, to teachers, to healthcare professionals, just to push out what we do know uh, about drugs of use. So uh, we spend lots of our energy uh, providing the facts with the strong belief that if you have the knowledge, you're going to make some informed decisions. 
And that's probably one of the reasons, uh, at least we believe, that kids seem to be making some good decisions these days about most of the, the drugs that are out there. Now, let me ask you this. Kids are fearless. They're not really at the age where they can make uh, rational or informed decisions about drug use. So are you really having an impact? Aren't kids' brains not quite developed enough to have that reasoning capability of what's right or wrong or, or healthy or not? You are right on target there. The uh, kids' brains are still developing actually well into their 20s, which is really quite remarkable. And so obviously the access to um, to alcohol, drugs, cigarettes, particularly at an early age, one puts them at a very vulnerable state with respect to their to their brain. And two, like you just said, um, may influence their rational decision-making because the brain hasn't fully evolved. And that's frankly where schools come into play, families come into play, uh, you know, information that's out there. So it's really a constant attempt to really surround kids by opportunities to make good, healthy decisions and recognizing that, in fact, uh, they are often exposed to the potential opportunity to make bad decisions. But can we figure out better ways to intervene? That's why there's lots of uh, science-tested prevention programs that really um, give kids an opportunity to really learn better ways to make positive decisions. Dr. Jack Stein is the director of the Office of Science Policy and Communications at the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Dr. Jack Stein, thank you so much. My pleasure. We encourage folks to check out drugabuse.gov for more information about National Drug and Alcohol Facts Week. This is National Drug and Alcohol Facts Week. Hear this conversation again whenever you want by subscribing to our podcast. Just search for Mississippi Edition in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting app. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's the Gestalt Gardener. At 10 o'clock, it's Next Stop Mississippi. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedy for Women. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again Monday morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi Edition, only on MPB. Think Radio.